listening to you. Psalm 42 on our journey through the Scriptures, Genesis to Revelation. And if you're with us this evening and you don't have a Bible, always important to have a Bible in church, but doubly important on the Sunday nights because we do cover a little bit more territory than the Sunday mornings, and you'll kind of be lost a little bit without a Bible. So just wave at these guys that have the Bibles that are coming up the aisle, and they'll get a Bible into your hands. And then if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift to you uh, from the Lord. Psalm 42 is a, a beautiful expression of the psalmist of appreciation uh, for uh, church, basically, for the assembling together of the saints. And so it, it is a great one for promoting that within, uh, within our hearts. He writes, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they continually say to me, Where is your God? And when I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with a voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept a pilgrim feast. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. So he's talking to himself. Some of you will be relieved to know that that's quite biblical. Roses are red and violets are blue. I'm a schizophrenic and so am I. So the old, I guess you can laugh if you're not a schizophrenic. I think I am. I don't know. Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. Oh, my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan, from the heights of Hermon, and from the hill Mitzar. Deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and in the night his song will be with me, a prayer to God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with the breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? And then he repeats the self-exhortation. Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and of my God. And so beautiful psalm written also. And a great psalm to turn to for when our souls are cast down. And, of course, every child of God hits that at one time or another and more than once, certainly, in our uh, Christian life. The psalmist, as we uh, look at it, is in a very, very difficult uh, trial. So the, the psalm comes out of a difficult season in a, the life of a worshiper of God. We're told in verse 6, 
that he's very, very far from home. We know from verse 6 that he is up in the area of Mount Hermon, which is up in the Galilee region, the northern region of Israel. Jerusalem, where he longs to be, is in the southern section of uh, Israel. And so he's far away from Jerusalem and, as a result, far away from the temple and the, the concentration of uh, the worship of the Lord and kind of, you know, where uh, the church service is kind of happening for in his day. He tells us in verse 7 a little bit about the circumstances that he finds himself in the middle of. He likens the circumstances to be like waves and billows that are buffeting him. One of the great days on a trip to Israel, for the, some of you who have been there, is when you go up uh, into the northern area in the region of uh, Tel Dan. There is at the base of Mount Hermon. Uh, it's the only place that uh, kind of snows regularly, annually in Israel. People think it's a desert, the whole land from one end to the other. It isn't, and it snows up there. They even have a ski resort on Mount uh, Hermon up in the north. It's interesting. But so that, water, that snow melts, goes down into the springs, and then it comes up out of the ground. There, one of the springs comes up. There's three main springs. One of them comes up in the area of, of Tel Dan, the ancient city of Dan. And the water, I mean, it is flowing so strong. I mean, you wouldn't want to get out into it. And everybody stops and takes pictures and and it's a wonderful thing to look at. And you realize that if you were to step out on the rocks and into that flow, it's so strong it just would immediately sweep you away. And he feels like he is really under his circumstances. He's being swept away by life. He's not able to stay on top of everything that's happening in his life at the moment. It's kind of like if you've ever seen uh, some kind of a movie of the... Um, you know, the old days, I don't know, 100, 100, 200 years ago, where they would be on these ships and got the sails and everything, and they're going to head out and cross the Pacific or the Atlantic or whatever. I, I have such admiration for sailors in those days. I, they must have been running from something or I don't know what to get them on there. They just love the sea, obviously. But to get on there, and sometimes there'd be a great storm, and they'll capture it in movies every once in a while, and a sailor is thrown overboard in the midst of a great uh, storm, and he's, it's all he can do to keep his head above the water. And that's the imagery of the language that the psalmist finds himself in at this particular point in time. He feels completely overwhelmed by life. And then on top of that, in verse 9, we're told that he feels forgotten by God. Now, that's never a, a good time to feel like God has forgotten us, uh, but it's never especially bad to do it when they're in the middle of those kind of circumstances. And it is those circumstances that make him feel like God has forgotten me, he has lost track of me, doesn't anybody care about me, even God. And on top of this, we're told in verse 10, all of his enemies are reproaching him, and whatever they're saying to him is creating great personal pain in his life. 
And uh, it isn't hyperbole. He's being accurate when he says, what they're saying to me is as painful. Uh, The only thing I can compare it to, he says, is to the breaking of bones because these enemies are scorning his faith in God. You have a faith in God in the light of what you're going through and all those difficulties. How could a God be real that would allow you to go through those kind of things? And for a person who loves God and knows God and has a desire that the world would come to know God as a result of our life and our circumstances and how we conduct ourselves, the last thing in the world we want is that something is happening in our lives that is causing people to doubt the existence of our God. And that's quite a trial to be in where somebody looks and says, these circumstances are so bad, they're so heaped one upon another that I can't catch my breath, and even my unsaved family or friends, instead of being drawn to by God to it, they're mocking my continued faith in God. And so he tells us in verse 6 that his soul is cast down. He is really the picture of discouragement, and his circumstances have completely leveled him. The word why, interestingly, is repeated ten times in the psalm. He's very, very confused at why God would allow all of this. And so this is the mess that he's in in the middle of. But we notice that uh, the great longing of his life, and this is the significant part of the psalm, this is the mess that he's in. You say, why in the world take so much time to develop that kind of context in order to simply make this next point. And so often the Psalms are written, there's just one great point, and God establishes a context related to him. So this is the mess that he is in. And what what is the one thing he wants to do in the middle of that trial? He wants to find 13 bucks so he can go to a movie. He wants to go to a concert. He wants to go to a play. He wants to get some kind of a remote in his hand and video game himself to death, you know, or schedule a vacation. You think of all these things that sometimes we could think of, oh, this is how I would deal with that situation. This is the longing of my heart in the middle of a trial like this. And yet we're told that the single great longing of his heart in the middle of this trial is for fellowship in the house of the Lord. That's powerful. In verse 1, he describes his longing and his thirst for God to be like that of a thirsty deer panting for water. Now, deers aren't, they're not uh, camels or some other animal that uh, they can go a long time without water. That when they need water, they're like us. They need water. And they start to pant for that water. And so the picture here is of a deer that's panting for water, desperate in its search for the water, the thirst is so great. I remember watching as a kid Western movies. I always liked Westerns. And um, every once in a while the bad guys would get the good guy. And uh, so maybe they would bury him up to his neck. I remember watching one movie. And, um, and I know it wasn't bad because I was a real little kid and the movies were all really clean back then. But they put this guy down all the way down into the ground up to his neck with the dirt. And the idea was that if he didn't tell them what they wanted to know, they were going to leave 
and let all of these fire ants go into his ears and eat his brain out while he was alive. Very, very cool. <laughs> For a young boy, wow. Now today they, they would actually show it in the movie and they'd zoom in and here's the ant coming out with part of his brain and all of that. But they were a little more discreet in those days. They left something up to your imagination which is actually more powerful than anything. So why you are just watching this thing? And of course there they are and he tells them everything they want to know and then they go, ha, 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 we're not going to let you go anyway and they head off and the guy's a dead duck. And they, so they show the camera and his lips are just caked. They're like leather and they're all crackling and all that kind of thing. And he's about to die, you know, and here you are eating your Tootsie Roll and your Jujubes and whatever cheap candy you could afford to buy him watching the whole thing. And then finally, because he's the good guy, somebody would come along and rescue him and then hold that, get him out from there, hold that canteen up to his lips. And, I mean, you'd almost be going toward the screen. Just wanting a little drink of that water. You could just sense the thirst. This is the kind of thirst that this guy is, is having. And you notice... In verse 4, that phrase, I used to, he describes in, in this his desire to once again assemble with God's people in the house of God. So he's very far from the temple, but he has very fond memories of the temple. And, and when he remembers very fondly when he used to go to the house of the Lord, he would walk with the multitudes of other people that were going there. He not only loved God, but all these other people loved God just like him. And, and he's surrounded by these kinds of people and, and just the celebration of people coming into the house of the Lord. And so he's kind of reminiscing related to the sights and the sounds and all of the things associated with that. And it makes him appreciate all of those things even more now that he couldn't be there. And he always loved to assemble together with God's people. And as he thought about all that was happening in the house of the Lord, very far from him at the moment, it, it wiped him out. It cast down his soul. And to me, the entire psalm is really this wonderful kind of gushing forth by a child of God of their deep, deep appreciation for the assembling together of the saints in the house of the Lord. And it communicates how much he loved it and how much he esteemed it and he valued it. He longs for it. He misses it. I mean, he's saying it in every way that it can. He'd be there in a moment if only he could. And that kind of thing happens yet today. You think about the saint who uh, grows very, very old and can no longer um, drive to church or even get out of bed to get to church service like this. So it's streamed on the Internet, and so many churches do that now to accommodate that need. But a lot of people can't come to what we're being a part of tonight, to worship the Lord together in song, to hear one another's voices, and I'm not alone, and we worship this God, and we love this God. These things are priceless things. Sometimes people will get an illness that is so severe that it sets them into a kind of a debilitating bed situation. They no longer can uh, attend church, but they'd be there in a moment if they could. I tell you, I understand that I, if I 
if I were in my dying days and I knew my days are limited, I said, listen, uh, Dad or listen, Damien or whatever, you only got strength really to do one or two more things before it looks like you're going to go into heaven. What do you want to do? I want to go to a movie. No, that's not what I would say. I want to go to a concert. I would say, as God is my witness, would you please take me to church? Take me to where God's people are assembling in this world, as strangers and as pilgrims in this world. Take me somewhere where the Word of God is revered and where there's the witness of the Holy Spirit to the teaching of the Word, and where there is worship of God going on in spirit and in truth. You take me to that place, because if I have only one place that I have a choice to go to, that's the place that I want to go to. Nothing else in the whole wide world compares to that. There is a prophetic something about what happens when two or more of God's people gather together in a room like this or anywhere in the whole wide world. There's something prophetic about corporate worship. There's something where a person that comes in that knows nothing about it is not yet a Christian. They walk into that and they realize when, when the worship is done in spirit and in truth and they walk in and they say, this is like nothing else happening in the whole wide world. I don't understand it, but I know something real is happening here between these people and God. And it's a powerful, powerful witness and a powerful thing that happens when we come together like we're doing tonight to worship the Lord and to study His Word. And, of course, the key that the the psalmist is bringing out here is not to wait until the opportunity to fellowship is lost, to understand the privilege that it is. And so often in life we don't appreciate what we have until we're on the verge of losing it or we have lost it. And so, yes, the Lord is with us. Yes, the Lord is with me all day, every day. Yes, I can meet with Him in the forest. Yes, I can meet with him up in the Sierras. I can meet with him at Yosemite. But there is something unique and special that happens when God's people assemble together that does not happen even when I'm alone with God. And it's all complementary. We're not choosing one thing over the other. And the psalmist missed that something that occurs in a relationship with God that when it occurs in relationship with the rest of the body of Christ. And I'd like us to notice very, very importantly in verse 4, and especially those of us who are parents, I want you to notice that word remember in verse 4. If you don't give your children anything else in life to remember... Give them a childhood of memories at church, of being raised in a church, of going to church, of developing that as a part of their lives, a normal, 
of their lives. And so you, you, uh, there's so many things that we're, so many pressures that are upon us, even as Christian parents. These are the expectations that are on us in order for our child to have a successful or a blessed or a wonderful childhood. None of them compares to having a godly heritage and a discipline and a regularity of assembling together in a child's life, that that is a part of their childhood, that that's been modeled for them, and that they carry that into their lives for the rest of their lives. I'll tell you, the world doesn't know anything about how to build the best memories in children and how to create the best childhood a child can have. It won't be found in entertainment and having a bunch of stuff and staying busy every single second of every single day. It will be found when we consistently bring our children to church and God is quietly witnessing to their little hearts, this is the way, now walk in it and make it a part of your adult life as well. I think about some of the competition that comes against God related to his children. Those children that we raise, they belong to God first and they belong to us secondarily. And so these children belong to him and we live in such an activity crazed and uh, a sports crazed culture that we live in that parents are running over here, running over there, this and that, and we've got them in uh, this league and then that league ends and then we get them on this league and then we get them in this league and oh, by the way, that league means that they're traveling on Sundays and then pretty soon they're not going to church and then we deny them that experience in their life. And I've watched it over and over again through the years. How many people, and I say it only so that you don't make the mistake. Here are two parents. They've been raised in church. They have a Christian heritage. They understand, at least in terms of their own life, the blessings of having that as a part of their childhood. And they know better. And yet they become adults, they have children, now the pressures are the kids, you know, can really pitch or can really kick a ball or shoot a ball or whatever it might be. And now the pressure is on, all the greatest games are being played at the same time the church service is. And they pull the kids out of church for long blocks of years out of their childhood. And they rob the children of the one thing that wasn't robbed of them. And they, the, the adults, the parents, they leave church as well because they're doing all of the driving. But they can navigate it a little bit because of their Christian heritage as children. And so they know how to have a life with God, a devotional life with these different kinds of things. So they navigate it kind of halfway okay. They survive it a, a little bit. It's not ideal, but they, they do only because their parents did to them the very opposite of what they are now doing to their children. And they don't realize that they are now robbing their children of the very thing that allows them to successfully navigate life as an adult. Never do that. I grew up in a crazy old home growing up as a kid. And I don't, I don't feel sorry for myself. I did it one time. But as a Christian, I don't. I believe I had the childhood 
that I was supposed to have to come to know the Lord and to be able to serve Him. I was talking with somebody. I mean, what if I was born into some rich family in Boston? They send me to an Ivy League school, and then I head off to become a who-knows-what, and I never get saved. Would that be better than the life that I had? Would that be a better childhood than the childhood I have? I don't cry over my childhood. It was the way that I was going to get saved. It's the way that led me to meeting my wife and having the children that I have, the life that I have, of knowing you as a church family. There are no complaints. God's providence, He is in charge of our lives. It doesn't say that all things are good, but that He will work all things together for good. And we believe that about our lives. I'll tell you the one thing my mom got right is she got us to church. And nobody could have known in the hearts of four of the most messed up kids the most inappropriate, don't know how to conduct ourselves in public, embarrassing kids. Sorry, brothers and sisters, if you're listening to this. Didn't look like anything was getting through to any of us, but God was powerfully bearing witness to the truthfulness of His truth, and He was beginning something eternal in our lives that He never let go. And I'd rather have that childhood that would involve being raised around the things of the Lord than any other childhood that you'd like to lay out. We must never rob our children of that. Karen and I, we weren't perfect parents, but we tried hard. But the one thing we can look back on is we gave our children that to take into adult life. What they would do with it, that's entirely up to them. We don't have control of that. But we gave them that to have to take into life. And I would encourage us as parents, I preach to the choir, you know, here you are on Sunday nights, but don't ever get moved away from that. Every childhood should have the memory of going to church worshiping with God's people, praising the Lord together, learning of the power of the Word of God all by itself, however weak or feeble or misdirected the teacher might be. God gives His amen to His Word. And so He tells us when we're in the middle of this kind of back to the psalm now, He tells us that when we're in this place where the circumstances are the way that they are, we're far away from the house of the Lord as He was away from the house of the Lord. Even if it's for a week or even if it's for a day, what in the world do we do? And we notice what He did is He talked to Himself. He said, Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? He said it in verse 5. He said it again in verse 11. I was so relieved to see this in the Bible. Because I do talk to myself all of the time. Sometimes it's when I'm just wondering, here there are the, you know, 13 varieties of lima beans. Oh, my. Couldn't I live in a country where there were just two? Okay, which one of the lima beans do I buy? As if I would ever buy lima beans. Is there a more... I was going to ask if there's anyone who eats lima beans, but I don't want to know <laughs> if you do. You say, oh, no, they're so yummy. Don't tell me they're yummy. 
right up there with yellow squash. Oh, now I'm, now I'm offending. Yes, I know. There we go. Yeah, sure. All right. Mm-hmm. That's it. And then we'll start talking about garbanzo beans and, and alienate another section of the audience. But the thing that was going on with this guy is he really is in a place where he is no choice of his own. He's all alone. And so he doesn't have anybody to encourage him in his walk with the Lord. So he's got to encourage himself. And so he exhorted himself, hope in God, for I will yet praise him for the help of his countenance. And when it, and there was nobody else to tell him, get your eyes back on God and trust in God, he did it to himself. He spoke to himself. He exhorted himself. He's, here he's having thoughts that are contrary to the Word of God. He's losing hope. He's losing faith. He's becoming discouraged. Nobody's going to encourage him that's around him. He's, he's not in a, near the temple. And so he reintroduces hope into his own heart by speaking to himself. And so he rebukes himself. And it's good to know that we can do that. You ever talk to yourself? And, and just, I mean, even in just the spiritual sense, you just say, would you quit whining, you big baby? You're in this big pity party, you think it's the end of the world because of this and everything. Get over it and get on with your walk with God. Well, maybe you don't do that. I do that to myself. Maybe because I'm a big baby. Sometimes someone will come and they'll say something about somebody else. And I walk away and I think to myself, boy, I wish I didn't know that. And then I have to exhort myself. Listen, Kyle, you don't know that that's true just because they said that. Don't you dare come to a conclusion about that other person on the basis of what God said there because you don't know that it's true. And it's good to talk to ourselves that way. Nobody else is going to say it at the moment, so we can say it to ourselves Sometimes I'll start to worry about the future. What are you worrying about the future for? Have you ever starved to death? No, I haven't starved to death. Well, what God has always been to you, He's always going to be to you. You're not going to starve to death. Quit worrying and get on about what God has called you to do. And there's these places where we just talk to ourselves. And the psalmist acts like he's, there's two different kinds of people inside of him and because there are two different people inside of him and every single Christian. There's the old man from Adam and Eve... And then there's the new man that the Holy Spirit brought into our lives. And the old man doesn't think right, and the old man doesn't feel right. My old man feels a lot of things. It think, my old man thinks a lot of things, but he doesn't think clearly, and he doesn't feel clearly. And sometimes the new man, as Paul speaks about in the book of Colossians, has to step up and put the old man in his place. You don't know what you're talking about. Here's what is true about this situation from the Word of God. And it's good to have that kind of self-talk that goes on. So praise the Lord as the psalm speaks to us of the privilege of assembling together in the house of the Lord, to just come together and worship the Lord and to honor the Lord for all the spots and wrinkles of the body of Christ. And there are a lot of them. There's not, none of us are perfect that are in the body of Christ. It's the best thing that's going on in this whole wide world because uh, God makes sure that it is with His presence. 
I think it's important, too, to really learn in this psalm, the next psalm will have a little bit of it as well, the value of biblical self-talk. In the psychology, they have uh, what's called positive self-talk. You're so amazing. You're so smart. What else have you noticed about me? You're so handsome or beautiful. (laughs) What a way to start the day. There's nothing you can't do. There's nothing I can't do. (laughs) But what if you're not smart? What if you're not that good looking? And the fact of the matter is, none of us can do everything that we want to do. That's the, that's, that's, sometimes we just want to throw a shoe through the TV or the computer monitor when I hear this kind of thing going on. You're telling people there's nothing you can't do. You can't keep yourself from catching cold. When you're 80 years old and you're standing in front of your sock drawer, you're still going to walk out of that house with one dark blue sock and one black sock, let alone all of these things. It's all absolute nonsense to just kind of foist some, you know, foolishness on us. But there's something better than that. And, and infinitely better, and it's biblical self-talk. And we do have to develop that in our lives where we say to ourselves, the Bible says, this emotion arises, the Bible says, this thought arises, the Bible says. And so biblical self-talk is a very, very valuable thing. And then chapter 40, or Psalm 43 is another psalm where the psalmist's soul is cast down, but this time by it's the persecution of the ungodly, and uh, the lesson is very much the same. He says, Vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. So he is a, here is a, a Jew. He is a child of God. He's, again, far from Jerusalem. He's in some, somewhere in the Gentile world, away from uh, worship, uh, uh, Jerusalem, away from Israel. And he said, Oh, deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man, for you are the God of my strength. Why do you cast me off? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill, speaking of Mount Moriah, where the temple was, and to your tabernacle. And then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And on the harp I will praise you, O oh God, my God. He's longing for church uh, again. Perhaps a different psalmist, perhaps the same one. And then he speaks to himself again. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? So for all of the difficulty that he's facing, he never loses faith in God. And he realizes, all right, my emotions are taking me someplace. My carnal mind is taking me someplace. They are in the wrong place. I'm going to test these thoughts and emotions by the Word of God, and I'm going to bring them back in line. And so he speaks to himself, 
Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him, the help of my countenance and of my God. And so, a beautiful psalm bringing forth the same point. In Psalm 44, here we have the psalmist, uh, a psalm for when hard things happen to good people uh, for no apparent reason. And so, the psalmist has asked the question here of uh, God, why are we going through all of this mess that we're going through when we're being faithful to you? Now, that's real, isn't it? You ever wondered that related to God? God, why in the world is this happening to me when I'm walking with you? I'm being faithful to your word and to your calling upon my life. Why would you allow these things into my life when you know that's the relationship that I have with you? And so the psalmist, he just puts into words what all of us feel uh, sooner or later. And, and so the psalmist, he's in the, as we're going to see, he's in the middle of very, very difficult circumstances, and the circumstances are crushing. God has allowed them in his mind for no apparent reason that he can come up with, and when he thinks about it, he realizes that God could put an end to it in a moment, but he isn't, and so he's completely confused by it. And so he begins the psalm by reflecting upon God's past history of dealing with the children of Israel and how he had blessed them. So he's not doubting God's power. He said, We have heard with our ears, O God. Our fathers have told us the deeds that you did in their days and the days of old. You drove out, you drove out the nations with your hand. Now, as he's going to talk about God's miracles during the conquest of the promised land under Joshua. But them you planted. You afflicted the peoples and cast them out, for they did not gain possession of the land by their own sword, nor did their own arms save them. And the psalmist is saying, We know that the reason that we are in this land right now of Israel is because it was a miracle of you. It wasn't because of our swordsmanship or because of our military or anything. God, we know you are a powerful God who can perform miracles. This he knew. But it was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance because you favored them. And so he reflects on God's power in the past and what he knows about that. And then he expressed his confidence that the Lord would give them the same miraculous victories in their current situation that they were in the middle of now in the land, but being surrounded by the Gentile nations who are uh, looking to attack them. And he says, You are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Through you we will push down our enemies. Through your name we will trample those who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor shall my sword save me, but you have saved us from our enemies and have put to shame those who hated us. In God we boast all day long and praise your name forever, Selah, which means to meditate. 
And then in verse 9, he begins to kind of express his confusion in the light of what he knows God to be in the past, what he believes God to be at the present, and then when he puts it up against the circumstances that they're in and the difficulty of them and God appears to be doing nothing, that's what creates kind of the crisis of understanding for him. So he said, but you have cast us off and you've put us to shame and you do not go out with our armies. The defeat of the army of, of Israel was so uh, significant and apparent that they realized, all right, uh, it appears we've been abandoned by God. You make us turn back from the enemy. They had retreated from the enemy, and those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. All of their homes and cities have been looted, and you have given us up like sheep intended for food, and you've scattered us among the nations. We're just all over the place because of this defeat, and you sell your people for next to nothing and are not enriched by selling them. In other words, the invading armies took so many captives of the Jews that they flooded the slave markets, and slaves were going for next to nothing because they'd capture so many Jews and they were just looking uh, to sell them. He said, you, have ma- you make us a reproach of our neighbors, a scorn and a derision to those all around us. You make us a byword among the nations, a shaking of the head among the peoples. My dishonor is continually before me and the shame of my face has covered me because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles because of the enemy and the avenger. He's confused at the fact that God is allowing the enemies of Israel to become so bold as to slander the children of Israel, slander their God. Why would God allow them uh, to do that, to become so brash, to become uh, so bold and allow Israel to become a laughingstock and no longer respected in the world? And he said, all of this has come upon us, and here's his confusion. But we haven't forgotten you, nor have we dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart is not turned back, nor have our ways departed from your way. But you have severely broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or stretched out our hand to a foreign God, if we had engaged in idolatry, would not God search this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart, yet for your sake... We are killed all the day long, meaning continually. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. He's saying, all of these things are happening to us, and God, to save my life, it looks totally undeserved. I don't know why you would allow this to happen to me. And, And so this is the confusion that he has. And then he closes the psalm with a urgent cry to the Lord to help. He says, and he hasn't lost faith because he's continuing to pray. Uh, Prayer is an expression of our faith in God. So none of the the psalmists are not losing faith in God. They still have faith in God as evidenced in their prayers. Awake, why do you sleep, O Lord? Arise, do not cast us off forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our body clings to the ground. Arise for our help and redeem us 
for your mercy's sake. Now, this psalm reminds us that, and boy, is it an important reminder. It reminds us that there are other causes for hardship or trial in our lives as God's people than the guilt of our own sin or God disciplining us for our guilt. And sometimes we have that tendency of just thinking that if I'm a good boy and I do what I'm supposed to do, that I'm going to be spared significant trial in my life as a Christian. And the idea is that all difficulty comes into my life um, because I'm either disobeying God or because I am... uh, 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 he is uh, disciplining or chastening me as a result of it. And this was the whole thinking of Job's friends. We just get this thing all simplified. Hard things must always be because I'm doing something wrong and I'm in the doghouse. And that's uh, what he's thinking about and how he's, he's uh, uh, processing everything. And the psalm reminds us that there are other causes for trials and difficulties in uh, in the world, in our lives as Christians, other than doing wrong or the chastening of God. Sometimes it occurs because God allows our faith to be purified and to be strengthened. How is he going to do that? How is he going to deepen my faith, purify my strength, my faith, and strengthen my faith unless he puts me in bigger and harder circumstances in which I have to exercise my faith or my trust in Him. And He's always going to do that in our lives as Christians. So it doesn't always mean we're in the doghouse. Sometimes He's doing something very good in our life to develop and purify our faith. Peter wrote of it in his first epistle, chapter 1, "...in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials." that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Sometimes he just allows tough things to deepen our faith. And sometimes these things are allowed into our lives in order to produce godly character or spiritual maturity that can't come any other way. James wrote in his epistle, chapter 1, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Give me one reason why I should count it all joy. He gives it to us. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. I think about what how... Uh, shallow of people we would be, how um, uh, kind of pathetic people we would be if God did not put us in deep, deep difficulty at times to develop our godly character so that we can then help people who find themselves in that kind of circumstances themselves. God is developing character. Sometimes it occurs because we live in a world that is hostile to our Savior. And the world sees our Savior inside of us, and the world is going to treat Jesus inside of us the same way it treated Him 2,000 years ago. And 2,000 years ago, it crucified Him and persecuted Him every step of the way. Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. 
And if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they'll do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. And so sometimes persecution comes against us because God is transforming us into the most beautiful image a person can carry, and that is the image of Christ. But as God does that in our lives, it's just like the life of Jesus. It brings conviction of sin in the lives of others. And there's a lot of people in this world who, rather than changing their lives under that conviction, will then desire to end the life of a messenger, to put out that light. And that's our portion too. And sometimes there's just difficulty. Certainly the Jews were under attack, and the devil's been against the Jews for how long? He's certainly against Christians as well. Not for any failing in our life, but just simply because of the beauty of what God is doing in our lives. And sometimes we're allowed to experience these kind of seasons so that the supernatural presence of the Holy Spirit can be recognized in our life, and it brings glory to God. Paul wrote this to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He said, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. I mean, it's like he's almost uh, writing from Psalm 40, uh, 44. But he goes on to say, For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And sometimes God will allow us to go into a very, very difficult uh, circumstance because He knows that we have talked the talk to our family and to our friends and to our neighbors and to our co-workers And now he's going to let them know that we're not just about talking the talk, but also walking the walk. And then when they see us go into a trial, that they're shocked that a child of God could go into such a trial. And they watch our faith be unshaken by the trial. They realize there's something supernatural about that person's life. And there's something real about the God that they talk about. And they recognize the truthfulness of the God that we speak about because of the greatness of the trial that we find ourselves in does not shake us related to our faith in Him. And so there's a lot of different reasons, as the, and the psalm teaches us, that when this great difficulty occurs in our, our life, uh, situations that um, God could rectify in an instant, but He doesn't, that, that the cause for his 
inaction is not due to the fact that he's powerless or he's asleep or he's punishing us for some kind of wrongdoing. Very often he is doing something absolutely gigantic, ginormous. He's doing something so beautiful and so great, we just can't recognize it for the moment. And if he told us the whole picture, then we wouldn't be walking by faith and we would mess up the whole thing. So it operates that way. And a beautiful psalm just to remind us that there are other reasons for difficulty than our own wrongdoing or God's chastening and that when we find ourselves in these difficulties, we are not to doubt God's wisdom or His power or His love. You know, it's kind of funny as we think, boy, I'll tell you, it's good, I'll tell you. I know a few weak Christians that really need to hear something like this. Tell you. The funny thing is, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and there's an example from each of them, two of the strongest men in the Bible were stumbled over this very issue. They were faced with a circumstance in their life that they could not understand, but they knew God could rectify it in a second, and yet He didn't do it. And it caused them to begin to doubt God related to that. The first one was Elijah in the Old Testament We're following that great victory on Mount Carmel. God was so powerful, and here he answers and consumes the sacrifice by fire, and it's just one of the greatest days in the history of the children of Israel. And then God allows Jezebel to threaten Elijah with his life, and she says, listen, if you aren't dead by this time tomorrow, then I'm not the queen of Israel. And Elijah begins to run, and he doesn't begin to run because he's afraid of Jezebel. He's not afraid of Jezebel, and he's not afraid of dying because he's asked God to kill him. So he runs out into the wilderness, and the great struggle that he's having in his faith with God is how in the world could God, after that great demonstration... On Mount Carmel, how could he allow a wicked woman like Jezebel to threaten him in this way? It seemed inconsistent with the love and the wisdom and the power of God. Of course, God comes and meets with him and explains to him a little bit about what's going on in order to bring perspective to his life. But Elijah, he was stumbled by that. I don't get what you're doing here, God. And then John the Baptist in the New Testament, he stood up to King Herod and told him the truth about his sin. He ends up being thrown in prison. John the Baptizer, who had called by God the the last of the great prophets of the Old Covenant, and he, he confronts him with the sin, and here he is, a cousin of Jesus and everything, and he ends up getting thrown in prison. John the Baptist has to be thinking, all right, I'm thrown in prison for righteousness' sake. I've done nothing wrong. I'm a good Jewish boy, and I'm being faithful to God's ministry that he's called me to, all these things. It's only going to be a matter of time before Jesus gets the guys, gets them on their horses, breaks into the jail, and lets me out. And then time begins to go by, and Jesus doesn't spring him from the prison. 
though he had the ability and the power to do that. And finally, John the Baptist begins to waver, and he sends some of his disciples to Jesus and says, Are you the one, or are we looking for somebody else? That's John the Baptist who had baptized Jesus in the River Jordan and had witnessed the Holy Spirit come upon Jesus in that place. He had seen a lot. He had heard a lot. And yet here he is shaken because he's in a circumstance that seems to him to be inconsistent with the love and the power and the wisdom of God and how it ought to operate in his life. And Jesus looked at the messenger that had been sent, and he says, you go back and tell John that the poor have the gospel preached to them, the blind are receiving their sight, the deaf are receiving their hearing. In other words, he was saying, you go back and tell John that while I may not be meeting his expectations for the Messiah, I am meeting the expectations of the prophetic scriptures of the Old Testament, and I'm fulfilling them, and he should put his faith on that and not on his present circumstance. And then when the messengers left, Jesus turned to the crowd because there was a crowd that had been listening to him teaching, and they'd been listening to all of this, and they understood the implications of what was being said. And Jesus didn't want them to think any less of John the Baptist for his trial of faith. And he said, what, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? And he began to speak of the greatness of John the Baptist and the faithfulness to his ministry. But it's always interesting to me that sometimes these... That sometimes the greatest zealots in the body of Christ or the greatest zealots that God has used through the ages. We think, ah, oh, those are the people that will never have a crisis of faith, and yet so often they are the ones who do. And this psalm uh, it, written here, Psalm 44, is a very, very valuable reminder to us of the fact, again, that not all difficulties in our life that we can't understand are because we're wrong, uh, we're doing wrong, we're outside of the will of God. And when we hit those, these circumstances in our life, we know that we're right with God. We should never allow them to cause us to doubt the wisdom of God, the power of God, or the love of God related to our lives, but to realize God is up to something even bigger than I can understand. And, you know, that's just the way that it is in the Christian life. And it gets more and more so the longer we walk with Him and the older that we get, the more that we realize how much this really isn't about us. It's about Him being seen. It's about Him being glorified. It will mean the death of us in terms of our natural man for that to happen. But that's the, the most beautiful thing that can happen through our lives is for God to be seen through our lives. And so there is this confusion that can occur in our lives. There are a lot of other reasons. God can be up to a lot of other things uh, when He allows difficulty into our lives. One good thing to think about when that happens is, all right, who has recently been introduced into my life that isn't saved? And then go strangle them. No. Sometimes you just look and say, okay, this trial has put me in contact with what group of people that I would have never come into contact with 
if I had not been in this trial. And God, are these the people that this is all about? Because there's only two things that are eternal in the world, and that's human souls and the Word of God. Everything else is going to one day melt with a fervent heat. So God is, he is trying to reach people through his word, and we are a living word before his people. And so I think about most recently for me with this little cancer diagnosis and everything and going over to Stanford and, and everything, and I had a friend of mine, he said to me, he said, well, um, uh, he said something like, isn't it great I get it and I forget what he, what he said, but... He said something like, well, there must be people over there that uh, need to be saved or something else. And that, that's kind of the gist of it, where you just look. And, in fact, when I was going over to Stanford, one of the ladies who kind of um, helped us with a situation over in the Bay Area, she used to be a nurse uh, at Stanford and all. In fact, in the same department that I was going to go into, she was now, uh, she's a pastor's wife and, and now, um, you know, uh, serving in a different capacity, no longer there, but she uh, emailed me and spoke of her and others with her that had spent years investing their life in that environment in order to bring the gospel both in word and deed to these brilliant men and women who are in the medical professional. And then she said, don't mess it up now. She, didn't, was it, she, she really put it that way, but she kind of did. So she said, that's what you, kind of what you're going into the middle of and be aware of that. And I thought it was a very, very good word. And that's what's true of all of our lives related to these things that are going on. Who in the world is God trying to reach through us? One day we'll be in heaven. All of this will not only not be a distant memory, it won't be a memory at all. And that it will all be worth it to us when we see what God was up to one day. Let's stand together and we'll pray. The worship team come forward. That'd be great. Well, it took a long time for you guys to get up. Did you hear those chairs just go up? The teenagers were up right away. Twenty-somethings, that was the next group, the 30s. I just heard one just here recently, right over here. Someone's 110. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for all of the emotion and all of the experience that's found in these psalms, all of the things that we recognize in our own life and our own relationship with you. There's nothing new under the sun. And we thank you that you have recorded these psalms for our instruction and to bring perspective to our lives. And we trust that that has happened in our lives tonight, Lord, and we thank you for that as we have studied these psalms together. We close tonight just giving you thanks for your word. Heaven and earth is going to pass away, but your word will never pass away. We thank you for the privilege of being able to think biblically, to process biblically, to build our lives, Lord, on obedience to your word. Thank you for your word tonight and every, every opportunity that you give us to be able to study it. We thank you for each of the men, other men and women that stand in this room with us. We thank you for their love for you. 
We thank you for their relationship with you, Lord. We thank you for the privilege of being able to assemble together to worship you and the blessing that that is both to them and to us. We thank you for the body of Christ and the privilege and the joy of being a part of it, Lord. Thank you tonight for being our God and for how much you love us and how gracious you are toward us. We give you praise, and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Mike, would you close us?